Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network Medical Director Varun Fadke and Associate Medical Editor Ethel Weld will be discussing a series of case studies on COVID-19 outpatient therapeutics. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Dr. Weld, we see you have a case of a 71-year-old man with diabetes, obesity, and hyperlipidemia on atorvastatin, presents with mild symptomatic COVID-19. Can you tell us about the treatment considerations? Generally, the first question I like to answer in a situation like this is, does this person who's been confirmed to be infected with SARS-CoV-2 need treatment? And we know that he is symptomatic, maybe has a mild sore throat, cough, rhinorrhea. So treatment is not recommended for asymptomatic individuals. And we don't have great data with available therapeutics for post-exposure prophylaxis after exposure for currently circulating variants. So we start there. Does he have symptoms? And the answer is yes. So next we ask, kind of, is he at high risk for progression to severe COVID disease, hospitalization, and death? And this is a bit more complex, but there's kind of a long list of conditions that are well-established to confer a higher risk of progressive disease. Personally, I like to go to the CDC website for a curated list of these conditions with the evidence behind them. But things like cancer, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, uh, HIV, neurologic conditions, obesity is on the list. So right up front, we know he's at risk because of his diabetes and obesity. And then when you add in his age of 71, kind of with an understanding that older adults are at the highest risk of getting very sick from COVID, more than 81% of COVID deaths occur in people over age 65. And and it's about a hundred times higher than the number of deaths among people in their twenties and thirties. So we see kind of a stepwise increase in risk of severe disease with each decade of life beginning, I'm sorry to say in your forties, my current decade. So yes, he needs treatment. And then the next thing I like to consider is people ask, does he need treatment even if he's vaccinated and boosted? And we know that vaccination and boosting significantly lowers your risk of getting severe disease. However, it's not lowered to zero and other risk factors may still be at play to increase your risk. So I generally advocate a belt and suspenders approach or kind of to use a different metaphor because to be honest, having your pants fall down is not that bad. It's not professional, but you're probably going to survive it. The metaphor I prefer is using both seatbelts and airbags for automobile safety in the case of a crash. But if this were my 71-year-old, somewhat fragile kind of loved one, I would recommend treatment. Yes. And treatment with what? Well, we, we do know that we have the option of, of antivirals for non-hospitalized adults with COVID-19. And Paxlovid, which is the combination of nermatrovir and ritonavir and molnupiravir. I generally opt for the Paxlovid because of preferable efficacy results in phase three trials, preventing hospitalization or death. We saw about an 88% reduction in hospitalization or death among unvaccinated adults with at least one risk factor. And in the EPIC-HR trial, which is the trial I'm talking about, these were generally younger adults than him, most with obesity as their main risk factor, but you could argue that he has the possibility of even more benefit, perhaps because of starting at a higher risk. And the risk difference in that trial amounts to a number needed to treat of about 18. You'd need to give Paxlovid to about 18 people to prevent one hospitalization or death. So it's true. We are extrapolating a benefit from trials that were performed in unvaccinated individuals. It's true. 
we assume this person is vaccinated and boosted, but is it worth it for the potential benefit? And given how well tolerated this drug generally is and the high efficacy, I would say yes. Now, this patient is on a torvastatin and the ritonavir protease inhibitor component in Paxlovid will definitely inhibit the clearance of and raise levels of atorvastatin in a way that will put them at risk for statin-related adverse events. And given that the benefit of statins with hyperlipidemia is really on the scale of a lifetime ASCVD risk, discontinuing this medicine for a few days during his Paxlovid course, or stop it the night before he starts Paxlovid and then restart it three days after his course is over, should really have negligible clinical impact. There's many useful sites. We'll include some of the links in the notes from this episode. Many useful sites can help you navigate these drug-drug interactions. I want to spotlight my preferred site, which comes from the Science Advisory Committee for Ontario. Uh, so it's the kind of the Ontario COVID Drugs and Biologics uh, Clinical Practice Guidelines Working Group. We'll include this link. It really is an extremely helpful way, stepwise approach to determining which drugs are contraindicated, which drugs can be adjusted, and how to manage that clinically. So this should not really be a barrier to using Paxlovid unless someone is on an absolutely contraindicated drug that cannot be held for a short period. So this brings me to a hot button issue of late. What about this issue of viral rebound after Paxlovid? There are emerging cases as this drug rolls out clinically of a subset of individuals that get Paxlovid, start to feel better, maybe even test negative while on the drug, and then start to develop new symptoms uh, after going off Paxlovid and test positive again. People have been trying to kind of interpret this and understand what to make of this. Uh, How often is this occurring? Do we see drug resistance associated with it? Could individuals with rebound uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmit a potentially altered virus? Do some people have higher risk of rebound? And basically, the, the bottom line here is that these reports don't currently change our thinking about the drug being highly effective at this point. Is it surprising that an RNA virus might rebound on monotherapy? Not particularly. Another example of this would be hepatitis B, where we sometimes see rebounds after treatment discontinuation. But overall, what happens to these individuals is they may have symptoms for a period of time. They do not seem to have a risk of being re-hospitalized or having a risk of progression to highly severe disease. So it's important to take all this into consideration. This is an extremely important area to study, but at this point, it wouldn't stay my hand from using Paxlovid. Dr. Fadke, do you have anything to add? I think Dr. Wells has done a really nice job outlining kind of the general approach to thinking about outpatient therapeutics for patients like this. I did want to highlight that this approach and sort of the stepwise questions she asked herself are kind of the framework that underpinned the outpatient roadmap tool that was created by the IDSA Real-Time Learning Network to assist with this kind of decision-making for outpatient therapeutics for patients with COVID-19, starting with the basics like, is the patient eligible for a COVID therapeutic? Which therapeutic is preferred? And what are the additional treatment considerations? The only other thing that I will add is a common question that comes up after you've gone through all of this decision-making and counseling is, where should you send your patient to get the therapeutic? A resource that I'll just highlight is the Asper COVID-19 Therapeutics Locator Tool or website, which is helpful to identify pharmacies and other locations where not only Paxlovid, but other uh, COVID therapeutics are available. 
I was going to just actually ask Dr. Well to comment on one other common dilemma that comes up, which is if uh, a treating clinician is thinking about Paxlovid but decides against it, either because of a drug interaction or uh, availability issue or something else, is there a recommendation about the alternative agents that are available? The alternative agents that are available include molnupiravir, which had, as we mentioned, a lower efficacy in the phase three studies, but is definitely shown to have some antiviral efficacy against SARS-CoV-2. And it's generally safe to be given in those over age 18 who are not pregnant. It was found in preclinical studies in animals to have teratogenic effects. So it is not, not recommended in pregnancy and important that you get a pregnancy test before prescribing it. This person does not have a risk of becoming pregnant. So that's advantageous. So molnupiravir would be an option and, and should not be overlooked in this high-risk individual. The other option uh, to consider would be bebtilovimab. So this is currently our only monoclonal antibody against SARS-CoV-2 that re- retains efficacy against the currently circulating variants. So the day this podcast is being recorded in late May, we have a current estimate from the CDC genomic surveillance, national genomic surveillance system, that uh, about half of cases in the U.S. are due to the Omicron variant BA2, and about half of the cases are due to an emerging variant called BA2.12.1. Catchy name, I know. The question is, is our monoclonal still effective against this emerging variant? And it does still seem to be based on in vitro experiments. It is currently still FDA authorized in all regions. But I want to draw people's attention to an important resource for me, at least, because this domain changes so quickly and, and the monoclonals in particular seem to be the therapeutics that are most vulnerable to a resistance. And that resource is looking at the FDA EUA fact sheet for providers And just under the prescribing information on the very first page, there are two links. And one of them is the link to the CDC regional variant frequency data. I'm just kind of tracking the the proportion of various variants. And the other link is linking to the FDA's determination of whether this particular therapeutic remains efficacious against these variants, whether it is still authorized. And the presumption is when it stops working, the FDA pulls authorization. So that's a good thing to monitor. It's a good thing to be aware of. Things can change extremely quickly in this pandemic. Just being equipped with the resources to look for information is important. And just to mention that bebtilovimab is a single intravenous dose. So that can be operationally sometimes a bit challenging to arrange, but most clinics can do so. It does not require significant monitoring afterwards. Just a 30 minutes to an hour. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Slachwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 real-time learning network forward slash COVID health equity resources.
Dr. Fadke, why don't you tell us about the next case? A 34-year-old pregnant woman presents with moderate non-hypoxic symptomatic COVID-19. Many of the same guiding principles that Dr. Weld talked through for our first case scenario apply to this one as well. Pregnancy is now a well-established risk factor for progression to severe COVID-19, and therefore this patient is certainly eligible for uh, outpatient therapy of her infection. But the, the additional twist in this case is that her pregnancy is a key consideration in the selection of an appropriate safe agent. Pregnant people were not included in the clinical trials of the currently available COVID-19 therapeutics. And though that might give some clinicians pause about prescribing them, any anticipated theoretical and honestly difficult to quantify risks of these agents has to be weighed very carefully against the very real and established risks of severe COVID-19 in this population. Like the previous scenario, and like Dr. Well uh, nicely summarized in terms of efficacy data, the preferred agent in this population is still uh, Paxlovid. From a safety perspective, there's a lot of experience using the ritonavir component of Paxlovid in pregnant and lactating people with HIV. And there are no anticipated safety concerns in the pregnant population uh, based on animal data for either of the two components in Paxlovid. I think one of the most important items to discuss in the context of this case um, is the alternative agent to Paxlovid, which is molnupiravir. The FDA EUA for this drug specifically recommends against its use in pregnant people based on data from animal studies that Dr. Weld mentioned. So what are the practical implications of that? So what that means is if Paxlovid is not available or other agents are not available and molnupiravir is being considered for a patient, then pregnancy actually has to be excluded with a pregnancy test. So this particular patient would not be a candidate for molnupiravir. If a patient that you're seeing is not pregnant, but is of childbearing potential, they need to be further counseled about the need for effective contraception. Uh, individuals of childbearing potential uh, need to be using effective contraception for the entire duration of the molnupiravir course, which is five days, and for at least four days after completion of the course. As a corollary to that, men of reproductive potential have to use effective contraception while on molnupiravir, and then for at least three months after the last dose of the medication. So those are the kind of important, unique considerations for this particular scenario. The last thing I'd, I'd like to plug, just given what we're talking about here, is really the importance of vaccination in pregnancy. Given its health benefits for mothers, birth outcomes, and infants. The IDSA uh, Real-Time Learning Network recently produced an infographic for both patients and clinicians to use to help understand and summarize the benefits of vaccination, and I cannot stress that enough. Dr. Well, do you have anything to add? The only thing to add is that there's emerging data on the safety of remdesivir in pregnancy, and so doing a pine tree study like regimen of intravenous administration of remdesivir, 200 milligrams on day one, followed by 100 milligrams IV daily on days two and three could be considered. And it's true that the complete efficacy and safety profile of these agents is not completely known in pregnancy. I will say that ritonavir 
a component in Paxlovid has abundant data from pregnant individuals with HIV who are on protease inhibitor-based regimens and no increased risk of overall teratogenicity was was observed um, even in first trimester exposure with that drug. And also just to reinforce uh, once again that getting these drugs in as soon as possible from symptom onset is extremely important. So for Paxlovid really has to be within five days of symptom onset. And these are hard to keep track of. They vary for the the different therapeutics, but uh, that is all very nicely summarized, we think, in our outpatient roadmap tool, which we'll include in the links to this episode. Thank you. And Dr. Weld, can you please tell us about the last case, a six-year-old boy with seizure disorder, paraplegia, tracheostomy, and ventilator dependence presents with cough, fever, and test positive for SARS-CoV-2. So going through the same kind of risk framework, this child is clearly high risk. He has medical technological dependence with his ventilator dependence. He has neurologic issues and he has disabilities. So he's at risk for progression to severe disease. So in thinking about how to treat this six-year-old, Paxlovid does not have EUA authorization for children under 12 years of age, though it is currently being studied in this age group. And molnupiravir may not be used in those under age 18 because of concerns about long bone and cartilage toxicity in animal studies. Beptilovimab is something we consider in some children. It's authorized for children 12 years and older. And just a side note, it's authorized not because of study in that population, but because of presumption of no increased toxicity in that population and extrapolation that the likely exposures achieved with adult dosing of beptilovimab will be similar in children 12 to 18. So that's an extrapolation. But Children 12 and older who weigh more than 40 kilograms, that could be considered, but there's really scant clinical data and there's certainly scant clinical data in children. So it's really authorized only for people who have no other treatment options and cannot be given in this six-year-old. And aside from remdesivir, there are no other FDA authorized or approved COVID-19 drugs for six-year-olds. Remdesivir, however, can be used in non-hospitalized children down to three kilograms who are at least 28 days of age. So they're metabolizing enzymes have kind of leveled out and some rapid changes in drug metabolism and clearance that occur after birth have equilibrated. So in accordance with this pine tree study demonstrating benefit from three days of IV remdesivir and high-risk non-hospitalized individuals, this could be considered in this child. And he's got, he's probably working with a home care company. He probably has home nursing it might actually be easier to arrange in his case than in several others of your outpatients. But again, just to stress and reinforce what Dr. Fagte was mentioning for pregnancy, really the impact of vaccination in children should not be, it cannot be overstated. Um, So we saw, you know, when you look at antibody responses among vaccinated and unvaccinated children, and you looked at children who were infected with some of the earlier strains of SARS-CoV-2, natural infection did not protect as well against the Omicron variant that's currently circulating as vaccination did, which that's also been seen in adults. So really vaccination for this child would be critical. I'd like to thank Drs. Fadke and Weld for their time, participation, and expertise. 
For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on COVID-19. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.